Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. In this podcast, I chat to athletes, coaches, and industry professionals about their sporting journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. Guests range from Olympians to the everyday lover of sport, but the message stays the same. There is so much more to sport than what meets the eye. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you don't miss the release of each new episode. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'd love to hear from you. Before introducing this week's guest, I'm jumping in to let you know about a special Instagram giveaway happening right now. Brooke Stratton, Olympic long jumper and guest in season one, has kindly donated part of her 2016 Rio Olympic uniform to one special follower. With Tokyo coming up and Brooke literally jumping onto her second Olympic team, what a special piece of memorabilia. Head over to our Instagram page at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart to enter. Entries close on Sunday the 30th of May at 10am Melbourne time. Read through the Instagram post to check out all the terms and conditions. Good luck! This week we are joined by Matt Charles, a world-class full-contact fighter who genuinely believes in living the life of martial arts. His love and passion for martial arts has transferred through to develop his own business, Casey Elite Martial Arts. I was privileged enough to have joined Matt a few weeks ago in his studio on a Saturday and to experience the welcoming atmosphere that came along with being there. As we recorded this, you can hear a little bit of background noise of the classes in the next room. Listen past this background noise to hear about Matt's introduction into martial arts, how a work accident left him partially paralysed, but it was his love and passion for martial arts that motivated his recovery. We also hear about his three months in Thailand training for his fifth Dan grading. This episode will be split in two with the second part released later this week. Enough from me. Let's hear from Matt. Welcome, Matt. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. That's good. Thank you so much for having me in your studio. I feel very privileged to be here. That's good. It was, as you were saying before, it's been a while since you were here last time. It's always evolving and changing here. That's what we love about it. It always evolves and changes and grows. So, you know, what you see today will be different tomorrow. Yeah. The Chinese have got a saying that once you finish building your house, you die. Oh. So my theory is just keep on building. Yeah. Just keep on building and then that way, surely I'll live forever. That's maybe why our house is not finished at home. I've had the same conversation with your dad, who of course is a, is a friend friend of mine. And yes, we're both in agreement that you've got to keep building your house. You should never stop. Oh, right. That's why we're missing some glass windows inside. Cool. Okay. No, you're, you're actually prolonging his life. Good. Good to know. <laughs> So, can you tell us a little bit about your sport and how you got into it? Sure, no. So, my sport that I love called martial arts, but uh, more specifically is, is is karate. I started karate when I was 13 years old. I was in high school, picked on by other kids. I was small for my age as well. I'd heard about karate. I'd seen a bit about. It. Of course, that was when the Karate Kid movie came out. So with a lot of my generation, as is the generation now, with the new launch of the Karate Kid franchise, we're getting a lot more kids join. I was no exception to that. A friend of mine was going to a class, which is a little bit further away from where I lived, mm-hmm. but he invited me to come come along, so um, I thought that, that was awesome. Um, walking in there, I think from the fir- first moment I was just hooked. Completely different environment, it had structure, 
discipline. It had so much that I knew that I'd sort of lacked in my earlier years. And just having that, not just in a sport, but as something that I saw more as a way of life, for me that was awesome. Yeah. So I think I was hooked right, right from the first class. Right from the first class. So you left karate for a little bit, I only know this because you were a painter. Yes. So did you compete in your early years in karate and then work full time and then come back to it or what, what happened there? In the earlier years I did compete in all the under 18 tournaments, I competed a lot. After becoming an adult, uh, I did put tra tra training on hold for a little while. Uh, started with my uh, pain, painting career um, amongst others. Um, I'd got involved in the security industry for quite some, some time there as well, so I went back to martial arts to help mm -hmm. um, along with that. So I started with some kickboxing training and also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training. So karate sort of became the, the third sport that I was doing doing at that stage. But I, was st I still just want, wanted to get back to it. I still had to, you know, there was just some, some, something about it. Um, and then, then that, that, that's when I came across the school in Seaford where I, I trained with a friend of ours. Yep. And um, pretty much just kept going from there and I've never stopped since. Oh, that's amazing. And you said you were hooked from the first go. Was there a specific moment that you went, yep, this is for me? Uh, look, I think as far as defining moments go, back when I was younger, it was, it was harder to harder to choose a defining moment. It was more so a collection of events and times. Mm -hmm. And I think what got me to stay with it was our family was very, very poor. So of course my instructor was sending me home with notes all the time. And I opened up the notes to read and said, you know, your fees are overdue and can you please pay, pay your fees? And there was a tally there that the fees hadn't been paid in nearly a year. Okay. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, what, what, what could I do? Because I knew my parents couldn't afford it. Whenever they got the note, it always went, went within and they never did anything about it. So I approached my, my teacher and said, look, I understand the situation as it was but my parents can't, really can't afford to pay, well, well, what can I do? And he said, well, look, really it's up to you. So as soon as he said that, that it was up to me, I thought, well, I can wash your car, I can come and mow your lawn, I can do anything you want. And he said, well, you can wash my car if you want. You've got to do it before every class. Yep. So I said, yep, no worries at all. So that's how we started. And I think f from that, he taught me that if, if it was to be, it's up to me. Yep and there, there was no excuse. And just because financially my parents couldn't afford it, there was something that I could do. So I figured for this to be, it's up to me, so I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So you had that first teacher that gave you a real good mm -hmm. shot. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That he, like, you look back now and you're like, wow, that's, he gave me that kickstart, an opportunity. Were your parents really supportive of that? No, they weren't. For me as a child, life is very, very de different to what you see with a lot of kids these days. Um, my, both my parents were alcoholics. My whole family came from not a very good upbringing at all. So that there was no really interest outside of, you've been fed, that's all we want to hear, hear about it. So for me, it was all self-driven. Uh, yep. I, I had to have that self-drive, otherwise nothing was ever going to happen. Um, so for me, yeah, look, it was tough. I'd see my friends 
their parents had come, were coming along to tournaments, coming along to gradings and watching their classes. I didn't have anybody coming to, to, to watch mine. But at the same time, I didn't feel bad about that at all. Yeah. Um, I figured as long as I was there and I was paying attention, then really that's all that mattered. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. And, and it's great having your parents there. I had two very supportive parents. Mm. But at the end of the day, they're not the ones doing the work. You are. Mm. So having that internal drives really amazing. I think whether, it come, whether you're coming from a, a structured, caring family such as yours or a more of a dysfunctional family as mine was, Again, it's all about the individual. Yep. And if you can't find enough drive, you can have all the support in the world, mm -hmm. you can have all the talent in the world, you can have everything given to you on the plate, but if you don't have drive, and if you don't have that self-ambition, the rest is useless. Yeah. You, you can't expect everything to come from external sources. It has to be internal. Mm -hmm. And I've seen many, many kids come through here, and adults as well, and I see lots of kids, this kid's got talent, that person's got great technique, this person's got this, this person's got supportive fa family. And I don't really pay much attention to any of them. The kids that I do pay attention to are the ones that are self-driven and mm -hmm. the ones that seek things out for, for themselves. The kids that come and ask me, how do I achieve this? What more can I do? Rather than the parents coming up and asking me. Yeah. Or, the, or the kids who um, have got a tremendous amount of talent but they've got no real work ethic. And then trying to show them work ethic is hard. So if, if they haven't got that core um, belief in themselves where they understand that if, it, if it's going to happen, I'm the one that has to make it happen. Yep. There's not really a lot that you can do for those types of people. The perfect storm, which we, we've got quite quite a few here now, is where you've got kids, they might have a little bit of talent, they might not. Most don't. But they've got supportive fa family. That's, that's a big tick. And they're self-supportive as well, which is another massive tick. And they've got a strong work ethic. Yeah. So when I've got a kid who's got no talent but he's got work ethic, he's got good strong family behind him, then I then I know that we've got some something special. You can work with that. We, yeah. We can work with that. Yeah. The kids that we get that come through of, that can do all these amazing things, but then the first crunch comes and they've got to really show what it is that they're made of and they fall over. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't teach that. No. Nah in there or it's not it's either in there or it's not yeah yeah i found that when i was coaching swimming those kids that had that drive they weren't necessarily the ones that picked it up easy mm. but they would work on it and they'd stay back and ask me for help and go mm. what can i do it was those kids that ended up succeeding in the sport mm. yeah mm. now i did some research on you you had a significant spinal injury when you were 22 what happened yes. there uh, I had an accident at work, I had a retaining wall fall on me, which was pretty devastating at the time. My wife and I had literally just become a couple, yeah. so we were just starting to set up our lives together. I had this accident, which was a bit of a funny one because uh, retain, when, when you build a retaining wall, it's a tilt panel con concrete wall. They were building factories next door to the factory that I was work, working in, and the crane was lifting this thing up and had it come down onto this centre uh, beam which hold, hold, holds it up and then the wall started to tilt towards me. There was no safety barriers in the way or anything else like that. I, I was just out of the back. Instinctively I put my hands up to brace against this wall and as it came forward and forward and forward my, my feet slid, slid across the ground until I hit the wall on the other side and as I'm holding this thing up oh my God. thinking that I'm about to get squished then all of a sudden my back just went into an, an immense amount of pain. I can't even describe it can't even describe it 
and I dropped to the ground thinking to myself that this, this thing was going to fall on me. It leant over and it touched the other wall and, the, and that's where it stayed. So if I had it just crouched down, it would have been fine. But instinct yeah. told me to put my hands up. So I had, I think, five or six small fractures from L3 through to S1. But I blew out all the discs in between on all three. And um, the way that these particular disc bulges protruded were directly against my spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So that caused an almost immediate impingement. So I was pretty much... 70% pa pa paralyzed from, from that day on. Wow. Uh, and it was 12 months before we found a surgeon who was willing to get, get in there and try it. Yeah. Everybody else just said, we're going to open you up, pull everything out, fuse, fuse it all up, and that's going to be you for the rest of your life. But of course, I couldn't really accept that because the way I'd seen it, my life was just starting, yep. not ending. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit of a tough one to to start with yeah yeah and so you were 22 what were you doing in karate then were you you were still competing or you'd kind of step back a little bit step back from competing at that stage i wasn't te teaching a lot either the club that i was at had closed yeah so it was pretty pretty much going from different clubs to, to different clubs where other of my train train training partners had been going but then we moved from geelong pretty pretty much as soon as i had my first surgery which is which a year after the accident we moved down here. Okay. Um, and then pre pre pretty much as soon as I found a, a club down here was in Seaford. Yeah. And that was maybe a year after. We had to wait for things to my back to settle down, of course. But um, And there was a lot that I couldn't do, but I figured I'd rather do something than nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, so then, of course, I, I, I started up down here. And did you find that that love and passion for the martial arts was the driving factor to help you rehab? Look, it was. I was a bit concerned, and so was my wife, that it was way beyond my ability. Yeah. But I just had my daughter, who turned, I think, four, four or five at that stage. Oh, she wanted, wanted, wanted to come along with me as well. So for me, it was perfect. I thought, here's a good opportunity to introduce my daughter to something that I love, and also for me to continue something that I love to do as well. Yeah. So that's how that um, evolved. Uh, my daughter stayed in it until she was about 16 years old, which was awesome, which was really, really good. And then, of course, my daughter, Ruby, now, she was practically born in this place. Yep. Um, but, well, that's another story. <laughs> but, yeah, getting back into it then was, was important. I, it, I knew it was tough, but there was a lot of pain to get through. But, you know, I figured if it's only pain, it's only pain. Yeah, and I guess you're... I know a few, a few parents that have got their kids into sport and they're able to share that passion and that love for their sport with their children. And I personally haven't been able to experience, I had very supportive parents, but neither the two of them were swimmers, neither yeah. the two of them overly passionate about swimming. But how did you find like being able to share that with your daughters? It was pretty good. I think for my youngest daughter, Ruby, for her it was just a natural progression because she was born here. And right from the get-go, her, her father is the boss. Her yep. father owns the place. When she was maybe two years old, she'd sneak out of the office during what we call moxor at the start of class, where you close your eyes and you meditate. I'd hear the, these little footsteps, <laughs> and then I'd open my eyes, and there she is sit, sitting beside me. But she was the sort of kid who never really wanted to start karate she just wanted to teach it yeah so because she saw me as being the boss and the te teacher here so that's all she, she wanted to do she just wanted to be the boss and teach 
Not much has changed. <laughs> so she's still here and she still teaches and she still wants to be the boss. But she's learning to be a better student all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and it's cute that she used to like run onto the mat. It was adorable. <laughs> it was absolutely adorable. I've got a picture of her here somewhere. Oh, I normally show it there. Where is it? Ah, there she is. Oh, that's when she first started. Two, two years old. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so special. How old is she now? She's 14 now. When she was 12, uh, she fought her first tournament in Japan. Yeah. Uh, did extremely well there. Really, really well. Gosh. From four years old to 12 years old, she never lost at all. Wow. Here in Australia. Once we got to Japan, she had to accept the loss. Yeah. Uh, so certainly a lot better, but um, through COVID, thing, things have slowed down a little bit for the international scene, but I'm extremely proud of her. Yeah. Really proud, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, we've talked about your spinal rehab and get, getting back into karate, but is there any other significant milestones, like wins, losses, injuries? Are they tournaments? Tournaments, yep. Look, um, 2016, or in 2015, my teacher, uh, oh, sorry, my, um, my friend Tony went to my teacher in Thailand and said, look, I want Matt to fight in the World Championship in 2016. Do you think he'd be able to do it? Um, my teacher, Kancho Sifu, um, that's him, he said, look, yeah, no worries at all. He, he can fight, but we've got to make sure that he qualifies, so we need to get him some fights here in Australia. Yeah. So, of course, as soon as he got back, he said, guess what? You're going to fight in the World Championship, but we need to find some fights here in Australia first just so as Sif is happy. And I said, yeah, no worries at all. So we put the invites out there to every other club. Um, we had a few people say, yes, we'll come down and do it. Yes, we will. But then if, what it boiled down to at the end of the day was that nobody wanted to to fight. So for me, it was a bit of a bit, a bit of a letdown because I thought if I can't get this sorted, then I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get the invite for, for the Worlds. For the Worlds. There was a big meeting in Thailand, and then there was a big meeting in Japan, and then after that, the, the Japanese masters agreed, yep, no worries, he can fight anyway. We did a bunch of sparring videos and things that we did from him, sent that through, and they said, yeah, look, that, that's, that's fine, he can fight. So I then went from training here on my own to going to Thailand, training there for three months. Mm -hmm. During that time, that was probably the most brutal of the training that I've ever been through. But it, it, what, it, what it started to do was show up um, little injuries that were starting to plague me a little bit more, a little bit more. There were certain things that I couldn't do and progress started to die before the end of the tournament training. I started to find out that things weren't right, especially with my hips. Yep. Uh, and of course my back injury was, start, was starting to get a little, little, a little bit worse as well. When I got home from that tournament, I went and got x-rays and everything else straight away, which revealed that my hips were pretty much completely destroyed. So I had to have them both replaced as well. Oh my gosh. Um, but I've got two of the best titanium sports hips <laughs> that, you that you could ask for. Yeah. They are the best. But fighting in that tournament was a big eye-opener. But it was funny too, because I, 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 didn't, I didn't enter that tournament to win. Yep. That, that, that wasn't my aim. And Sifu knew that too, because I'd, I'd gone so long without competing and all of a sudden I'm going up against the very best in the world. He knew that I could hang with him. Mm -hmm. When I faced, my first round was against the Pakistani champion. He'd been undefeated for five years. I, I finished him in 30 seconds. Wow. So that was great. So I knew that skill-wise I, I, I had what it took. Then I fought the reigning champion after that, uh, uh, Kirijima. And 
on that same day he was also inducted into the Hall of Fame. So to fight him was, it was just massive, it was huge. Yeah. And for me it wasn't a loss at all. I see that as one of the defining moments, not just for my career, but what it did was it opened up our club to the world stage. Yeah. And it said to the world, especially to the Japanese, that our club, this sort of club from Australia, we've actually got some talent. So from then we've had numerous invitations to world championships and titles and we've always placed, every one of our kids have placed. In fact, 20, uh, 2014 Okinawa Open, our team was the first Westerners to ever get past the first round. Wow. Um, in the 50 year history of the tournament, and then two of our kids won. So that was one of the biggest moments in Japan, which was just awesome. But the funny part was, was after that event, every time we go to Japan, you go through to the airport, and of course, it's over all the television screens it's it's all about karate because it's a, it's their national sport you you see a fair bit for judo, judo as well but all the major sponsors are on board with karate yeah um we were going through the airport and i remember being outside mcdonald's and i was just watching the the flash-ups on the televisions and then i went i know that person and i watched it a little bit long, longer and all of a sudden my daughter's on the screen oh my god and then all of a sudden now all of our fire fighters are on the screen i'm thinking wow this is incredible you know, nobody knows us here here in Australia, but over in Japan. You're famous in the airport. <laughs> famous at the airport. It was just bizarre. It was a really, really strange feeling. Since then, of course, we've had the Japanese Masters come here for our tournaments. They've graded our guys here to showdown black, black, black belts as well. We've Then that, then I got invited to do my fifth, fifth end in mm -hmm. Okinawa as well. So to have those doors open, that tournament that I fought wasn't for me to win anything, it was just to open doors. Yeah. And really that's exactly what what, what it's what, done. What it's done. We've we've opened doors. Physically there's a high price for me to pay for it, but it was worth every cent. It was worth it. Yeah, and Absolutely. like the opportunities that now come to kids in this club is immense compared mm. to what it would have been if you hadn't have fought. Yeah. It's funny, most people don't understand the significance really of what their rank and their belt means, but for a lot of clubs when you put your belt on, by the time you get to the door of your club, your belt comes off, that belt's not really worth anything. Yeah. Unless you're inside that club. But our ranks are worth everything. And any one of our members can take their rank to any club in Japan and they're recognised for it. Wow. Which is a huge achievement. Yeah. And there's not many clubs in Australia that can say that. And it's, it's, it's not something that we brag about either. And we certainly don't use that as a selling point when people walk in the door because they don't care what the rank is, they just want their kids, kids to learn martial arts. But for us, we know where it is that we stand on the world stage and it's something we're extremely proud of. Yeah, that's amazing. And you mentioned that you went to Thailand and you trained for three months. Mm. And on your website it says, as an inner student, like, mm. what did that actually involve? Uchideshi. So traditionally an Uchideshi is a student that stays for either 12 months or three years. Being an adult, I didn't have that type of time to be able to commit to it. But basically, you live and breathe yep. martial arts. Um, whatever the teacher's requests are, no matter how silly they are, cleaning the toilets in your gear, cleaning the office, cleaning everything, mowing his lawns, doing whatever it takes. And then once you finish that, you've got six hours of training to, to do every day as well. Wow. And a lot of it at the time, it just doesn't make sense. And it's just designed to bring you to your breaking point. And I can honestly say I've reached my breaking point many, many times. And to know where you stand physically, emotionally and spiritually 
is pretty special because you never realise just how much you can sustain and how much you can endure mm -hmm. until you push to do it. Mm -hmm. And I tell people here all the time that sure you're tired and sure you might be sore and you want to give up right now, but if I threw you on a pit of lions, you'd scamper out of there. Yeah, you've got a little bit more. You've, you've got more in you. And I heard somebody else talk about an 80% an 80 rule where even when people think they're giving 100%, they're really only giving 80%. And it's true, but that last 20% comes in at a, almost at a survival point. Yeah. It's almost that survival point that your body keep, keep, keeps in reserve. Yeah. I suppose knowing when that survival reserve is something that you can tap into or not, mm -hmm. or whether, whether you should, really that's um it's a funny place to get to in your mind yeah it's an interesting and i i don't think i've ever been there but i think i've been close to it however my partner and this is what makes it interesting my partner did a 12-hour ride yeah. last year and you've done a 12-hour fight yeah and maybe your wife can can like can say <laughs> how you turn you pulled up that night yeah. but because i yeah. was at home with my partner that night mm -hmm. did you reach that point in that 12-hour fight well, yes, I did. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly, at that point in my life, I had reached what I thought was the physical pin pinnacle of what, what it is I could achieve. Yeah. But then for the tournament training and then for the Uchideshi training, I was pushed way beyond that. Yeah, okay. Way beyond that. So at that point, I, 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 you I thought, thought that, that was I'd it. Re re reached it, but the actual fact was that there was still so much more. Yeah. But you've got to be emotionally ready, ready for it too. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not. Sometimes it's not a physical thing. It's more of a. It's definitely an emotional thing. Yeah. There are times when I was training, especially we've got this. Uh, the the Hombu Dojo in, in Thailand. It's a five-story build, build building, and right up the top is the is the kickboxing level, and that's underneath the hot tin roof. Mm -hmm. So you, you're in an elevated boxing ring, under a hot tin roof in Thailand, sweating like nothing else. It's just crazy. And then you're working with a with a guy cub called Mutt and he is just an absolute animal on the pads and he just extracts everything out of you. When you're training at that level and just being pushed and pushed and pushed round after round after round, also knowing that you've got to then go home, eat, get changed, get back to training yep. for karate class, he'll he doesn't care about that. He just wants to drag every, everything out of you that he can. I distinctively remember a few times where I'd Emotionally, I, I had to take myself away from it. Mm -hmm. I just had to let my body exist there, take mm -hmm. my mind completely out of it, and physically just let happen what happens. It was the most bizarre conscious choice that I'd made to remove myself emotionally and leave my physical self just to be beaten up. Yeah. And I thought to myself, don't worry, I'll live, I'll survive, but mentally I, I just need, need to remove myself. Yeah. It was the most bizarre feeling. Did you feel like... Because I've experienced something when I've been swimming and it would happen very rarely, but I'd try to get there because I knew that's where my best results mm. came from. But I went numb mm. and I could no longer, it was almost detaching. I could no longer actually feel the pain I was in. I knew I was in pain. I was in pain 10 seconds before that, yeah. but I'd go numb and then be able to push more, like push past that point. So I'd maybe reach 80% and then I could go to that 82, 83. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I ever went to 100. But did you ever go numb? Absolutely. I, I, I think ex what you described pretty much was that going numb sensation. Yeah. 
because I, because I had to remove myself from it, I didn't want to feel anymore. Yes, you didn't want to feel the pain. Didn't yeah. want to feel, feel it anymore, so I had to go through that. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times, but mind you, these are they're, they're, they're all self-inflicted moments that we put on ourselves. Yes, yeah. It's a completely different prospect when you're in pain in other situations or with, with the last spinal surgery that I had, where you're forced into a position of pain that is way beyond your control and yeah. it's, it's not your own doing mm -hmm. and then mentally trying to accept that is so much harder than the mental pain that you actually put on yourself that you that, that you willingly step into yeah 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 it's interesting how that transfers over to other sports mm. and yeah the 80 percent mm. going numb yeah is there a benefit that sport has provided you that has transferred over to other avenues of your life with martial arts, and I guess it's sort of, I've got, I've got to try to keep, keep, keep this as short an answer as I can, <laughs> but we live by a certain code in martial arts. The benefit of doing what it is that we do is that we get to listen to music and punch on with our mates. Yeah. And on the outside, really, that's what it, uh, it looks like, and that's an enjoyable thing. Taking a combat sport and using it as something to relax yourself is... Um, it's not the easiest task in the world to do, mm -hmm. and a lot of people find it really, really confronting. And that's why we see people who come in with with their first sparring class, and they will be emotional because normally you'd associate when you're younger and you're in trouble and you get smacked, you get that physical yep. sensation, or you've been picked on by somebody, and there's a lot of emotion attached to it. But when you're practicing in a, com in a combat sport, you've got to detach yourself from that completely. Mm -hmm. What we call that essentially is budo. Yep. And, and it's Budo is a code that we choose to live by. So no matter how ugly things get or how violent things might become, there's always peace, there's always calm. And it's a certain way that you choose to live your life. And it's not something that just happens here in the dojo. Most people think they, they come to the club, they perform what it is that they've got to do, then they walk out and they're rude to the first person that they bump into. Yep. Or they don't carry those lessons on. Whereas those of us who live the life, um, we choose to follow that, follow that same lesson in every part, part, part of our lives. And what that's done for me, it's given me a healthy family life where my daughter can grow in a, um, an environment of complete trust, understanding, but she knows herself and she knows her boundaries. She knows what it is that she can do. She knows exactly what it is that she can't do. I myself know where my own boundaries are, what I can and can't do. And I can teach that to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I've always been on the mindset that you can't teach others what you don't do yourself. Yep. And you can't expect putting them through what you haven't been put through. Yep. So I can't turn around and tell these guys to behave themselves and be and be good 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 to themselves if they haven't. Sorry, if if I haven't. Um, done it yourself. Done it myself. Sorry, I got a little bit distracted. <laughs> now. If I um, say to my students, you've got, you've got to live a good life, you've got to be good to your kids, I can't be a hypocrite not. Not do it yourself. Not do, do it myself. But I also twist that around and use that, and I say to these guys, I want you to do a thousand push-ups, I want you to do this and this and this, and don't worry, I've done it myself too. Mm -hmm. So for them, it gives, it, it gives what I teach um, a lot more credibility. Yep. Even when I'm sort of in the position now where physically I, I, I can't do nowhere near as much as I, that I could do, but my past has already spoken for itself. Yes, yes. I suppose. Does that make sense? I guess I like would experience that when I was coaching swimming, mm -hmm. or like I teach it now and I manage a swim school, but I would 
tell the kids to do something, they're big, no, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, guess what? I've done it. This is, this is what we're doing. This is the way to do it. And it does give you that little bit of, they're like, oh, well, if she did it, then I can do it too, rather than, oh, well, she's just standing up there telling us what to do. Yeah, it does help you teach the younger generations or your students what, what's yeah, it expected. Does. Absolutely. It's hard when, when a lot of them don't really listen anyway. <laughs> um, and you'll, you'll probably find, find this too in your te teaching career where you'll say, 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 and you expect everyone to listen the way that you say it, but that's just not the case. Nah. But I don't see that as wasted time at all because if I'm talking and I'm going over lessons, as long as I'm paying attention to what I'm saying, yeah. then at least I'm going to learn out of it anyway. Yeah. So therefore I start to teach myself. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a position where my teacher is so many kilometres away that I don't have the benefit of daily inspiration from somebody else, you've got to give it to yourself. Yeah. And teaching is the best way to inspire yourself. It's the best way to um, to learn something new is to teach something old. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So when you're teaching some, something, I look at different ways that I teach it and I can see things from different angles. Because I've already taught it this way and this way and this way, and I start to teach it from this angle, then this angle. Yeah. My teacher never taught it to me from that angle. So now you've learnt something new. So now I've learnt so something new. And then I encourage my students to do the same thing. Yeah. And then I'll have one of my students come back and say, well, I actually taught it using this method. Yes. And I'll say, yes, I like that. Very good. So obviously I'll steal that one. Yeah. You and didn't you... learn that from anyone. You learned that from me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't make that up. That's you come from me. You didn't make it up. That's mine. That's mine. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a good thing with the community aspect of mm. of it and having that team with you is you can bounce ideas off each other and go oh yeah well this works for me and mm. then they go oh that works and you're like that's a great idea I've never thought of it mm. good good on you fresh eyes came up with something new mm. yeah mm. that's awesome Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time.